Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the management of recovered COVID-19 patients and post-COVID syndrome. To address these are IDSA members Dr. Robin Trotman with Cox Health and Dr. Anissa Gendalina of Montefiore Medical Center. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Gendalina, let's start with you. As we learn more about the trajectory of COVID-19, what do we know now about how individuals' needs are following the acute period of illness? We are just starting to learn about what is happening post-acute illness. And I would like to start answering this question by bringing us back to the beginning of COVID illness and sort of map out stages of illness. So we really have three main stages when we talk about actual COVID-19 illness. Um, We have stage one, which is early infection characterized really primarily by viral replication and the viral phase. We have the second stage, um, which is predominantly pulmonary, where there's a control of viral replication and initiation of host um, inflammatory and host immune response. And then, of course, the third stage or hyperinflammatory phase, which is really predominantly um, host inflammatory response, where we see a lot of inflammation. So when we talk about organ dysfunction or what's happening to patients, we really then start looking at things that are due to direct viral action or viral replications and things that are really due to immune response or immune-mediated disruption. Having set that up as a background, when we start looking at people who are recovering from COVID or sufficiently far out from their initial infection, then we start looking at complications Obviously, a majority of patients recover with no complications. But when we do start looking at people who do still have symptoms, it's really due to lingering or remaining and organ dysfunction, again, either from direct viral replication or that was immune-mediated. Complications that can be due to prolonged hospitalization, obviously secondary infections, but we also talk about things like post-critical care illness, sort of the post-sepsis syndrome. When we talk about both of those, we really also mainly include things like neurological sequelae, um, psychological recovery, and really overall constitutional recovery. When we talk about what people look like following acute period of illness, we're really looking at both clinical recovery and organ recovery and overall constitutional and psychosocial recovery. Certainly a lot to consider there. Thank you, Dr. Gendlina. Dr. Trotman, moving on to you now, can you shed some light on how long COVID-19 patients are contagious after their recovery. This was the bane of many of us, uh, our existence at the beginning of this pandemic was uh, trying to get patients in the hospital out of isolation with the original direction to have two negative nasopharyngeal PCR tests. And so we learned a whole bunch real quick and we're still learning. Probably in the last month, we've really distilled our knowledge down to some discrete periods where patients have periods of infectivity and likely no longer become contagious. And so I I kind of break this illness down into this kind of four to six day incubation period, almost everybody inside of 10 days. 
so they have four to six days incubation and then there might be this 24 to 48 hour pre-symptomatic period where they're they remain where they're contagious but they don't have symptoms and then if you kind of break it into the 80 20 rule if 80 have mild disease and then 20 have severe and maybe of those 25 percent have critical so of those that have severe and critical they are likely contagious longer so what i've done is i tell uh, and when we look at the the data on uh, pcr positivity versus infectivity meaning replication capable virus being able to be isolated from these patients probably eight days maybe nine to ten days from symptom onset is kind of the magic number so it all fits together in this nice little 14-day cycle where somebody's exposed and then they have four to five days pre-symptomatic incubation period and then they're contagious for about nine to ten days and that puts us at a total of 14 days so that's why our quarantine for exposure is about 14 days from onset of symptoms you're in isolation for about 10 days that being said there have been cases of critically ill patients who had replication capable virus outside of that 10 day. And so I would refer the listeners back to the CDC update from August 16th. It's a great document and it has all the references and it has some graphs that compare PCR positivity and the ability to recover uh, replicating virus. And so that document from August 16th has a great bibliography and it tells us that about 10 days from onset of symptoms is where people are gonna remain isolated Outside of that, they're probably not contagious unless they're critically ill. And that's the big question. This was posted out on the EIN uh, listserv, and this has been passed around with text messages with uh, colleagues and friends of mine. How do you define critical and how do you make that uh, isolation period go from 10 to 20 days? And that's the question we don't have answered. So some people have said you are contagious and remain in isolation for 10 days post-infection unless you're in the ICU. So critical illness might be defined by just being in the ICU. Some people have said more than six liters of oxygen requirement. What I've done is I said, if you're immunocompromised and I use our standard definitions, meaning untreated HIV on high dose corticosteroids, receiving chemotherapy, those types of severe immunosuppression, then you're probably contagious maybe up to 20 days and those people remain in isolation. And in the hospital, they don't leave uh, isolation for 20 days. And then that definition of severity, what I've elected to use as a surrogate for severity is anything more than six liters of oxygen. So if they're using any type of high flow oxygen, non-invasive, we, we call those people contagious for 20 days. But really we're talking about case reports showing that out at 15 days, people have replicating virus. So again, I, I would refer people back to that August 16th CDC update, which has a lot of these references, things have moved quite a bit since we stopped uh, removing people from isolation with the two negative PCRs. And we're taking a little bit of a leap of faith in releasing these back uh, to the population. But when you look at epidemiologic studies and they look at exposures to these people outside of 10 days, they really aren't transmitting and we're not seeing a lot of contacts developing disease outside of 10 days. Great insights there, Dr. Trotman. Thank you for those. And speaking of those CDC testing guidelines that just recently came out, would you be willing to further elaborate on those as they seem to be causing a bit of confusion? Well, that, that's confusion that has arisen actually and become more complicated in the last couple of days, right? 
right now it kind of depends on the capacity of your local public health authorities. So uh, not everyone has the luxury of having contact tracings done within a day. So if your health department has been overwhelmed, if your local public health authority isn't able to do contact tracings, then you may not have access to testing in that first uh, four to five days. And the other thing that's important to realize is the presence of a negative nasopharyngeal PCR doesn't necessarily take somebody out of quarantine. It just means on that day, uh, you are not infected. So typically, even a negative PCR, you should still manage those people as having the potential for developing disease and being contagious. So uh, if, if they know they had a high-risk exposure, testing is uh, often indicated. Uh, this is kind of a moving target in the last couple of days. Uh, there's been some different guidance, but uh, a lot of it has to do on your local public health authorities and whether or not they can even uh, reach out to those, those exposures within that window of time. We know that testing probably inside of five days isn't very high yield. So even if somebody's been exposed, we wouldn't recommend they be tested inside of probably five days. Thank you for that clarification, Dr. Trotman. Dr. Genlina, back to you. Post-acute COVID-19 has been defined as extending beyond three weeks from the onset of first symptoms and chronic COVID-19 as extending beyond 12 weeks. Can you please describe post-COVID-19 syndrome, its symptoms, and which patients are most likely to have long-term issues? There is really no universally agreed upon definition, but there's certainly proposed definitions and suggestions that are based on our clinical understanding of acute disease progression and what we have been seeing and what we had learned in the past from MERS and the original SARS and what we have been observing with COVID-19 with this current pandemic. So infection within the first three weeks is considered acute COVID. Progression of symptoms or residual symptoms, disease for, for longer than three weeks is post-acute or um, sometimes referred to as long COVID. And um, as you mentioned, symptoms that persist or new symptoms that are related to COVID-19 that develop past 12 weeks are really thought to be chronic symptoms. So what really are those symptoms? And I will say that almost every organ system um, is, is really impacted and symptoms can be very, very broad and really present as a mix or um, can be targeted to a particular organ system and a particular pathophysiology. But sort of to think about it in categories, so we can think about serious sequelae, um, and that could be thromboembolic disease, um, sequelae to actually lung damage and destruction of parenchyma and things like cardiac dysfunction, deep venous thrombosis, things that we can really map back to pathophysiology. We have nonspecific symptoms that are sort of fatigue and breathlessness, um, shortness of breath, sort of this overall nonspecific constitutional state of being unwell. We have some number of patients who, of course, continue to require acute care and ongoing ICU type of care. And then there is also a category of patients who actually have an underlying condition that becomes unmasked by or during workup um, during their COVID-19 infection. So an example would be somebody who hasn't really been in care who is found to have diabetes or high blood pressure during their evaluation and care during COVID. So 
is it related directly to their COVID infection and is it really part of their chronic COVID or not can be debated. Having said that, symptoms can be um, specific or nonspecific. We are just starting to have studies come out of a number of settings, um, primarily from Europe, that are um, looking at patients who are sufficiently far out from their initial COVID, where we're able to start characterizing what this post-COVID or chronic COVID syndrome looks like. Again, studies are just starting to come out, but a number of groups have looked at patients who were never admitted, who were outpatients, uh, following patients who were hospitalized in an acute care setting, who have now been discharged and coming in for their post-discharge follow-ups, and then patients who are reached out because they tested positive, haven't really been in care, but we know that they're positive for um, follow-up and evaluation via phone calls. The range of patients who remain to be symptomatic is quite broad, but really ranging from 10 to 50%. So obviously, patients who, were, uh, who require the acute care setting to begin with, um, higher percentage of uh, those people tend to have lingering on, and ongoing symptoms. Um, it's a little bit less in people who were not hospitalized and did not require medical care at the time. But this definitely remains a, a very real problem. And many, many institutions and many sites are setting up um, post-COVID follow-up clinics that are really set up as multidisciplinary clinics to try to address this multi-organ involvement. I think I already talked about ongoing lung disease with uh, ongoing ground glass opacities and parenchymal destruction. There could be ongoing GI symptoms. Um, with either um, unmasking exacerbation of underlying inflammatory bowel disease or just ongoing um, sort of tissue destruction and ongoing symptoms. Um, obviously, there's inflammation and autoimmune um, disease, either again unmasking or neuroimmune disease that has to do with the severe immune dysregulation, um, again, affecting all and any organ systems. The one study that um, I, I would like to mention is there was a very interesting study done on actually Twitter posts, so, so social media study. I'm really looking to see how people are self-reporting what, what symptoms and what residual um, complaints they still have. And really, in pretty universal among everybody who is experiencing this chronic COVID or post-COVID syndrome is this malaise and fatigue, non-specific constitutional symptoms, but also shortness of breath, tachycardia, sleep disorders, and um, some neuropsychiatric symptoms of PTSD-like symptoms and um, sort of uh, chronic fatigue symptoms. Just to bring us back, as a post-COVID or chronic COVID disease, um, it really remains pretty similar to original COVID in a sense that it's really multifactorial involving any and all organ system. But from early studies, it really looks like it's heavily predominantly constitutional symptoms of malaise and fatigue. I appreciate that thorough answer, Dr. Gandalina. Dr. Trotman, what are some of the key management considerations in supporting recovery of COVID-19 patients? Dr. Gandalina hit the nail on the head. It's multifactorial, and I think it requires patients, not, not our, the people we take care of, patients on the 
side of the provider to to manage these people because there's so many it's very hard to distinguish the worried well and the expected complications from the severe and really concerning uh, complications and she talked about that how do you how do you tease out palpitations versus myocarditis in the discharged patient or regular dyspnea that you would expect versus a pulmonary embolus so you know I, I even reached out to some of our providers and as she suggested you really need to have a discrete team of doctors probably managing these discharge patients so that they get accustomed to these uh, complications because we know that, I mean, if you look at the JAMA paper and some of these should be in the, the show notes, on the it Italian experience, it, and I've used this reference quite a bit, at 60 days, half the people describe decreased quality of life and half the people still have over three, three uh, symptoms, the most common being persistent cough, shortness of breath, and fatigue. So how do you tease those complaints out and decide if it's a severe problem or if it's just the normal continuum of the disease? And, you know, also if you look at the MMWR paper from July 31st, 20% of healthy adults at two weeks aren't back to normal. And that's pretty concerning. Those are healthy people with mild disease. So this approach to managing these patients longitudinally requires patients on the, the, the side of the provider it requires us to emphasize the non-mortality complications of this disease. We need to understand these people lose wages. They have uh, psychosocial complications from this. It's, we can't just use mortality as the governor of, of the severity of this disease. And we can't write off this disease because maybe the infection fatality rate is low, yet you have 20% of young adults that can't go back to work at two to three weeks. So I think it's important for the provider to emphasize the non-medical uh, uh, complications. That's why I think in follow-up, if you have the capacity to do video visits, it's really good because you can eyeball somebody. Somebody calls your nurse and says, I have shortness of breath, but you can look at them on a, on a video visit, on a virtual visit. You can see they're not tachypnic and they don't appear dyspneic. That's a great tool to have. Even when I reached out to some of our providers that are doing this, they talked about having certain patients they do video visits with maybe as frequently as every other day for the first week. You have to decide who you're going to risk stratify and do that. Maybe for a week you do every other day visits. They're on supplemental oxygen. They're checking their pulse ox. I would refer the audience to a uh, British medical journal uh, about long COVID. And this paper should be in the show links. This was great. And this talked about some different uh, criteria to use for evaluating a drop in oxygen saturation and how to manage people with a pulse oximeter at home that maybe haven't ever used a medical device. So I start out with these patients and I start talking about the duration of quarantine. They need to know that they may be home alone up to 20 days. They need to be prepared for that. They need to be prepared for some of these symptoms that may arise and then the doctor needs to be ready to be able to distinguish between are these mild symptoms or are these warning symptoms like dyspnea that could predict a pulmonary embolus or myocarditis. I think it's also important to emphasize the mental health issues. Um, virtual visits work great for this. I start talking to patients early about convalescent plasma donation. So if they had an oxygen requirement, they're in the hospital, even if they were just sent home from the ER, they go home on a pulse oximeter, first visit, you start talking about uh, convalescent plasma, you start talking about the misinformation early because these are our messengers going forward. There's no better message than a sick patient who's recovered from this illness 
to disseminate the gravity of this disease. So for those patients, I start imploring on them to be transparent and truthful and to help encourage people to follow these things like social distancing and wearing a mask. And so I think those are really important. We talk about the misinformation. Then as patients do have symptoms, there might be uh, a role for at a week repeating their inflammatory markers. Maybe you repeat a CBC to check on their lymphopenia because we know that lymphopenia and elevated inflammatory markers actually prevent worsening disease. So there are a few labs that I might do and follow up, but really it comes down to a directed focused workup. And so if they have complaints, then you really pursue as you would with any other uh, patient with a pulmonary embolus or a myocarditis, or a lot of these patients will have diarrhea or persistent cough. And that workup would just be the same as for anybody else. So I, I, I think that it's key that if you have the ability to do virtual visits, you have the ability to uh, encourage them to fly the flag of good public health interventions, then you can slowly titrate down those virtual visits to where maybe you're at every three or four days uh, post-discharge. So that's kind of the bullet points and the high points of how we're managing patients. Excellent points, Dr. Trotman. The last question I'd like to pose to both of you, Dr. Gendelina, I'll start with you. Can you discuss some of the social and cultural considerations in managing patients in post-acute COVID-19? I mean, look, everybody has been profoundly impacted by COVID-19, and it, this really involves patients and providers and family members. And um, one of the really big issues and, and, and serious concerns from the patient side is they're recovering, but they're recovering in isolation, right? So we have all the social distancing in place. And, you know, if they, if they were hospitalized, then they were probably going through that acute illness period without their family and their um, sort of core support system with them on site. And if they're continuing to recover or to have persistent symptoms once they're home, they continue to socially distance from their family, again, from their normal social circle, especially with persistence of symptoms and potentially not being able to return back to their workforce and return back to even limited socially distance but sort of functionally normal lifestyle, it is um, exceptionally difficult to undergo this really profound changes alone. People with mental illness or people with underlying neurological diseases or conditions really have even lower threshold for being able to manage this um, social isolation and overlay with ongoing profound or, you know, variations of profound, but really predominantly constitutional symptoms. So um, it does become extremely difficult in terms of um, being able to interact with their social environment. And then really depending on what the cultural background and the cultural setup is, if somebody is culturally much more involved in family structure and, and um, their sort of immediate circle is much wider, then this um, social isolation and compounded with ongoing illness becomes much, much more profound. The psychosocial support system is key for these people who are going to be isolated. I mean, there's even CDC guidance about avoiding your pets. So there are, there are lots of 
uh, stressors on humans as they struggle through this. There's fear and uncertainty. There's loss of uh, income. And all of that really requires uh, the providers to be there. And that's why I think the virtual visits are so key. A couple other things that I think is important is this is a great time in a recovered patient to talk about lifestyle changes. So if you have an uncontrolled diabetic that smokes, this is the time to really optimize that treatment and ride this uh, wave of wellness. So I start having those conversations about now's the time to put the cigarettes down. Now's the time to get your diabetes to under control. You dodged a bullet. We know that you could have had severe complications from this. And so we've had pretty good outcomes in making some major lifestyle changes post-COVID um, because of that fear and uncertainty around the disease. People are often willing to, to make those changes. I think as providers, we have to be leaders in our communities, and we need to partner with long-term care facilities at the time of discharge. A lot of these uh, nursing homes and uh, long-term facilities don't have appropriate PPE. They don't have the knowledge to do good infection prevention. And so if you don't discharge these patients and take care of them and ensure that they're being managed uh, safely in these long-term care facilities, you're gonna have outbreaks and you're gonna have more patients from the same congregate settings. So anytime that we discharge somebody, you wanna make sure they've got a safe environment and you wanna make sure that uh, if they're going to a facility, that that facility has the ability to isolate this person, has good infection prevention policies. And I think that uh, the last thing is really, really talking about this quarantine and being there on maybe a, an every other day to every third day basis because what what we found is that readmissions or revisits to the emergency room if you're not there just for reassurance and just for acknowledging their symptoms if somebody is sitting at home with with uh, vague constitutional symptoms in their mind those are often the things that they've read about or seen on on the news as uh, 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 being harbingers of bad outcomes. So I think just having that dynamic uh, dialogue with patients is, is key and messaging the patients to really let their uh, friends, family, social media understand the gravity of this, that it's not just about the uh, mortality and the death associated with the disease. It's all of these other issues that we've been talking about that, that make this a more grave disease in addition to the, the fatality rate. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Gandalina and Trotman for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.